right, we're back in Acts chapter 2 this morning, and we are continuing our study through what is traditionally referred to as Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Um, I want to make sure we understand that it's not technically a sermon that we're studying. It's just come to be called that traditionally. Uh, The reason why it's important to remember that is that we typically think of sermons as the message that's aimed at Christians inside the four walls of the church meeting place. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with calling what I'm doing right now a sermon. But uh, this, what I'm doing right now, is not what Peter was doing then on the Pentecost. Uh, he was within a meeting place on the beginning of the day of Pentecost with the 120 disciples that were waiting on the Lord for that 10-day period between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. And then they were filled with the Spirit. And when they were filled with the Spirit, what the Lord was doing in them really was so great that it couldn't be contained within those four walls. And it spilled out into the street, so to speak. And a, a gathered crowd came from the surrounding city we find out at the end of chapter 2 it's a crowd as large as some 3,000 souls and Peter seeing that as the Lord's assigned opportunity he stands in front of that crowd and he begins to speak to them but it's not a, it's not a message aimed at believers at that moment while they were listening to Peter they weren't believers yet They were about to become believers, but they didn't know that yet. This is really what we would call a moment of evangelism. It's a moment of of a believer representing the gospel to unbelievers. And then on our uh, two studies ago, what we did was we, we focused on kind of an overview of what Peter covered in this message to these unbelievers. We saw that there was one primary theme. The primary theme was Jesus himself. He's the, the, the main one in the spotlight. The focus of this entire message is about Jesus, not about the people that are there listening. Now, Peter's going to tie what he says about Jesus to their hearts and to their lives and to his purpose for them. But it's super important for us to understand that Jesus is the focal point. And then we've also identified that there were seven what I'm calling sub-themes. If Jesus is the main theme, what, what secondary points does Peter use to drive home the Lord's primary concerns for that crowd that was gathered that day? And I should say this again, I, I, I emphasized this before, um, we are looking at this message that Peter preached as kind of a template for us to understand more fully how we can represent the message of the gospel to unbelievers that the Lord brings us across in terms of our pathway, meaning their pathway in life. But don't look at it as a formula because we're going to eventually, Lord willing, get to other messages that are shared with other unbelievers elsewhere or later in the book of Acts. And no two messages are identical. It's a customized gospel, meaning not that the gospel itself and its meaning changes. The gospel is a singular message that doesn't change, will never change, but it has so many parts, so many components to it that are a necessary communication to the heart of unbelievers that it can be customized for the group that you're speaking to, depending upon what the Lord moves in your heart to emphasize. And so in terms of 
how the Lord moved through Peter's heart, he emphasized these seven secondary concerns that are all putting the spotlight on Jesus in some important way. Those sub-themes are a coming judgment. For them, the coming judgment, of course, was the great judgment that was coming upon the city of Jerusalem some 40 years future to the day that Peter was speaking. Second, he emphasized miracles. Not just any miracles, but the miracles that Jesus accomplished when he was doing all the things that are recorded in the four Gospels in his public ministry. And those miracles confirming in a unique and important way that Jesus and only Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the, the, the third thing that he emphasized, which is going to be our focus for our study today, is he spoke to the crowd about predestination, which is entirely unexpected in the sense of, you know, we wouldn't normally think, I wouldn't normally think in terms of, I'm going to present the gospel to someone that doesn't even know the Lord, and here I'm going to talk to them about principles of predestination. But Peter, under the Spirit's influence, focused attention in their hearts exactly on that theme. Then in our studies ahead of us, we're going to look at, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at the focus on the resurrection. We're going to look at how Peter linked specific Bible prophecies to the resurrection of Christ and then focused attention on not just his resurrection, but on what happened to Jesus following him being raised from the dead, which is, of course, the ascension. We've already focused a good amount of time back in chapter one of Acts. We did some six weeks of a a kind of a mini series within the larger series of Acts on the principles of the ascension. But Peter spoke to them about the fact that Jesus is now in heaven. His story doesn't end here on earth. And then the final being, the final focal point being the, um, the accurate and true identification of who Jesus is now in the fullness of his heavenly glory that God has used all of these circumstances to confirm that Jesus and only Jesus exclusively is both Lord and Messiah or Christ. All right, so that brings us then to our focus for today, which I mentioned is the portion in the message which has to do with predestination. But um, let's read starting in verse 22, and we'll read through uh, verse the end of verse 23. 22 is where we focused last time. 23 is where we'll focus today. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. All right, the first thing that Peter wants the crowd to get and to understand, they're familiar, they already know about what's recently happened to this man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, how he was crucified. This was a huge event just a few days prior to this in the city of Jerusalem. This prophet from Nazareth who had an entire multitude of people that were following him. 
He was handed over to Pontius Pilate by the insistence of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin there in the city of Jerusalem. They brought the case against him, meaning they were, the Sanhedrin was really acting like the prosecuting attorneys in the trial of Jesus. And they insisted that Pontius Pilate would execute him. They ultimately got their way. Pilate was at at the beginning, he was uh, hesitant, he was resistant, but he, for political reasons, he, he bowed to their will. He ordered the execution of Jesus and Jesus was crucified to death on the cross. Peter's whole point, though, is not just that this happened, but that it has spiritual significance, even not just in the meaning of his death in a saving way, which he's going to be getting to later in this message, but he wants them to understand that even the circumstances that unfolded of Jesus going through this trial, being handed over to those authorities, and ultimately being led away to crucifixion, none of that was simply the the tragic end of a prophet story uh, where circumstances are now spinning out of his control and it ends up in a, a tragic martyr's death but oh if only we could have avoided that if only we could have ha- uh, seen some other end to his story peter makes this incredibly deep and powerful point right up front to them when he says jesus was delivered up for his crucifixion. The word delivered means to be given over into the hands of someone else, to be surrendered to authorities. But the question is, who surrendered him to those authorities? In the crowd's perspective, this was all the Sanhedrin's doing. And in the crowd's perspective, therefore, the Sanhedrin, the the high council, were really in charge of what had happened and what had unfolded here these few days before in this great event that had taken place in Jerusalem. Peter wants them to understand the Sanhedrin may have thought that they were in charge of this circumstance, but it wasn't ultimately them in charge at all. There were two others who had greater authority than the Sanhedrin, and it was really their plan that was unfolding It may have been hidden to the eyes of the crowd, and it was. And it may have even been hidden to the eyes of the Sanhedrin, it was. But it was the actual true story of what unfolded. There were two others that surrendered Jesus to this end of being crucified. Those two others are, of course, first and foremost, turn with me, if you would, to uh, the book of the Gospel of John chapter 3. I know you're familiar with it. We'll read the most famous New Testament verse. Famous, so so famous that uh, even many who don't know the Lord are somewhat familiar with this verse. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So there are two things in focus here. The first thing is that there's a story in the sacrifice of Jesus. There's a story of the love of God. And it's, of course, that special Greek word, agape, love. God so agape the world, which means 
really in this context especially, to love the unlovable, to love those who don't deserve to be loved, to love those who have nothing within themselves that should have called forth a response of love toward them. In fact, they only deserved a response other than love from God. But nevertheless, in spite of their, their failures, in spite of what they actually deserve, God chose to love them. And the wording here, it, it does indicate it, but it's, it's a little bit weak in our translation. But so I'm, I'm just, if you're one to underline or highlight in your, in your Bible, uh, you would want to underline or highlight this little word, so. For God so loved the world. He had a love in his heart for a fallen, broken, sin-infested world that was so deep and it was so great, the love in his heart for this broken population of humanity that he was moved to do something about it. Something needed to be done. And what he did in order to resolve the problem of the brokenness of the world was that he gave his only son. Not in a, like, "Ah, gosh, I don't know what to do. Let me try this. I'll give my son. Maybe that will help. But in this sense of there's only one cure for this infection that has spread so far. I mean, we recently, in just the last few years, went through a a COVID infection. And many of us had COVID and survived it by the grace of God, and some of us didn't survive it. But not all of us. Does anyone here that never actually had COVID? Okay, so several of you never actually had COVID. Praise God. That's a blessing. But if the infection was sin, is anyone here that was never infected by sin? And the answer to that is clearly and obviously no. We've all been infected and affected by the disease. It's a spiritual one, but the disease of sin. And in this circumstance, there's only one possible cure for that. And God was moved by the deepness, the depth of his love for the infected ones that he did what only he could do and what only he could accomplish. And he gave his only son. Now that word gave ties directly to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in which he describes the sacrifice of Jesus as a delivering up a surrendering, a giving over from one sphere of authority to another sphere of authority. The prior sphere of authority was Jesus lived his life in this world under the immediate and direct authority of God the Father. And had God the Father not chosen to give his son, no one could have ever touched Jesus. And no one ever would have touched him. Like the the one amazing story earlier in one of the gospel accounts where Jesus went back to his hometown as part of his public ministry and he, he stood up, this I believe is in the Gospel of Luke, he stood up in, uh, in the synagogue on one Saturday morning and he proclaimed uh, from a prophecy of the Old Testament that he was 
the fulfillment of that prophecy and the people, the, the leadership of the synagogue was so enraged at his declaration that they grabbed hold of him and brought him out to a cliff on the edge of town with the intention of throwing him off the cliff and killing him. And do you remember what Jesus did in that circumstance as they reached the cliff edge? It says he just turned around and walked through the crowd. It's like they just couldn't even, it's like they couldn't get him over the cliff. They managed to get him all the way to the cliff, but they couldn't get him over the cliff. He was impervious, non-touchable in that critical moment. But by the plan and purpose of God, because it was the only way to save a lost world, when the moment came, he was given over by God the Father to another sphere of authority. Now, the sphere of the Sanhedrin and ultimately the sphere of the Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate for his execution. But I mentioned there were two that were involved in this choice of giving him over. And the second is highlighted also in the Gospel of John, but a little bit deeper into the Gospel in chapter 10. So if you want to join me in John chapter 10. And this is one of the, the great discourses, as we call them, of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John. And it's the one in which he identifies himself as the good shepherd of the sheep of God. Well, we won't read the whole, the whole chapter, of course, but I want to read two key verses in verse 17 and 18. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the second one involved in the giving over of the Son was the Son himself. The Father chose to sacrifice his Son, and the Son chose to sacrifice himself. And unless the two had been in agreement and both chosen the same course, chosen the same uh, option, then his sacrifice would not have been accomplished. So when Peter says on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was delivered up for crucifixion, while the crowd didn't understand what I've just explained, you and I need to understand that both the Father and the Son were involved in that choice. And the emphasis, as Jesus just did in John 10, was on the the idea that his life was not taken from him. Looking at it from a natural perspective, looking at it only from a surface level perspective, if you're just one of the crowd some few days before Jesus on the, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost, when you're watching the circumstances unfold of Jesus being led to that hill where he was crucified it may seem like the romans are taking his life from him but that's not the actual story of what unfolded at all he was willingly laying down his life and the father's love was the driving influence that brought him to that decision so his life was not taken but his life was given both by father and son. Now let's head back to 
to Acts 2. And we'll catch the emphasis of the next phrase. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this idea of there being a plan and this idea of there being foreknowledge related to that plan is what explains the circumstances that the crowd observed, which was Jesus being crucified. The idea was this wasn't just a random sequence of events that unfolded in this tragic way, but this was a planned sequence of events. And of course, anytime you have a plan, what's important to understand is who is involved in formulating that plan. And in this case, from a big picture theological perspective, we should understand the crowd didn't that day, but we should understand that there were three that were involved in this plan. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three were involved not just in the plan, but all three were involved in the carrying out of the plan. And then even all the way through now to the day of Pentecost in the applying of the significance of that plan in terms of what that plan would then accomplish in the hearts of those that most needed it. So it's called the definite plan. This word definite plan or phrase definite plan, literally, if we were to translate it in, you know, I think you understand how this works. We've talked about these principles of, of understanding scripture many times, but it's always worth briefly revisiting. Um, The scripture wasn't written in English originally. You understand that. So the Old Testament portions of scripture were written in Hebrew. The New Testament portions of scripture were written in Greek. And um, anytime you're translating from one language to another, it's important to recognize that sometimes certain details can not so much be lost in translation, but not fully described in the translation that we end up with. So we're reading in English what Peter declared that day in Greek, and there is some detail that is not clear in the translation. So this word, or the phrase definite plan, if we were to translate it literally, would, would read like this. And I'll, I'll read it this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the horizoned purpose and foreknowledge of God. According to the horizoned purpose. Now, what does that mean to you when I say it in, in that hyper-literal way in terms of the most accurate translation of what was originally communicated? It would be difficult to grasp. What, what are you saying, horizoned purpose? We don't, the word horizon, that isn't even an English word. I mean, horizon is, but horizoned isn't an actual English word. So what are we talking about? We've talked a little bit about the concept of horizon before biblically described. If you look out, you know, we're in a building, so it's hard to to conceptualize this, but if you go outside and you look at the horizon, what are you looking at? Not so much. You're You're looking at a division between two things. You're looking at like the horizon on any given, you know, if you go to the beach and you, you're wanting to, to look at the, the sunset, 
you're looking at the division between the water and the sky. You're, it's, it's a line that, that demarcates two categories of things. So when Peter calls the delivering up of Jesus being part of a plan that God himself had formed, and he calls that a horizoned purpose of God, what he's saying is this set of events leading to the crucifixion of Jesus is set apart from some other events. This puts this event in a special and unique category distinguished from other events. So what other events is the crucifixion of Jesus being separated or distinguished from? All other events. The idea is this goes into a category of one. Now, does this mean that this crucifixion of Jesus is the only thing God has ever predestined in all of history? No, but it does mean that this is a special event that should be understood and interpreted differently than all other normal events that you will ever think about and ever encounter in the course of your life. Now, this is difficult because we're talking about, at this point, a deep theological concept, which is how involved is God in the events of this world? And that's the only right way to say it. God is very involved in the events of this world. But is he as involved in every event as he is in some events? And the answer to that is no. So this morning, um, I got up and I made myself a cup of coffee. Would I describe my making that cup of coffee? And I, I used the Keurig machine because I was in a hurry this morning. I normally brew my own. But I was in a hurry, so I, you know, I just saved myself a few minutes. I popped a pod in the Keurig machine. And you know, we have this one of those uh, pod holders. We pull out the drawer, and then we've got all these pods in there. And recently, Sandy bought a, you know, a mixture of different pods. And I'm looking at, you know, I've got like four or five, six different pods in there. And I, you know, I'm trying to decide, well, what pot am I going to use? You know, they're all coffee. They're all coffee. They're all, they all probably would have accomplished the same purpose, was, which was just to wake my brain up. But, um, you know, I've got this brand. I've got this brand. I've got this. Oh, it's, this one's medium roast. This one's dark roast. You know, was it God's horizon purpose that I ended up choosing the darkest roast? <laughs> yeah. Probably not, right? Probably from before the foundation of the world, it was probably not like high on God's list of planned things that would need to unfold in history to get us from where we started to where we need to be. I mean, it was useful to me this morning. And because I'm right now fulfilling some of the assignment God has given me, it had some bearing, some small bearing on God's purpose, but it's not like something that would rise to the level of God's horizon purpose. But the cross did. It was, a, it was an event of one, meaning a category of one, the point of it being up until that moment in history, up until the moment that Jesus was nailed to the cross. Nothing, I mean literally nothing, that had ever happened in history from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 
was as important as that. It's the singular most important thing that had ever happened in history up until that point in history. And I say up until that point only because it's followed by the resurrection and how important is the resurrection? We'll see in our next study, pretty important, pretty specially important, horizon from other events in that same special sense. And then following his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven. And we spent six weeks trying to, to remind our hearts from, from scripture of just how significant the ascension is. And so there are a few super, super important events that God before, and understand where, when this, and in fact, let's just go to the next word. Let me, let me introduce that before I make this next point. Looking again at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, the horizon purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God. So why does Peter add this second modifier? The reason he adds the word foreknowledge, and we'll talk about the, the, the right understanding of foreknowledge in just a moment, but the reason he adds that word is because it is possible to plan on the fly. Meaning, in my life, I've experienced this, I'm sure you've experienced this as, as well. You're, you're going along, you have a general plan for what you, what's gonna happen in your day, and then something happens that you didn't anticipate. And as that something happens that you didn't anticipate, maybe you get a flat tire. And so that, that changes the scheduling of what you had planned would happen that day. Are you capable of adjusting? Are you capable of, of instituting, formulating in your mind, and then instituting what we call plan B? Plan A was no flat tire. You didn't necessarily think about no flat tire, but that was your, your intention in planning your day. Now the flat tires happen. Can you adjust and make a plan B? Yes, of course you can. You better. You know, if, if a flat tire, you know, just stops your whole life in its tracks, my life can't go on. I've had a flat tire. I hope you're capable of plan B adjustments in life. Does God ever do plan B? The answer is he does not do plan B. Why? You and I have to do plan B. Why? Why do we have to do plan B? Because I, I couldn't have anticipated the flat tire. And if I had, and if I had God's power, this is what I would have done. No flat tire. I'm just going to go on where I want to go in the way that I want to go in the time that I want to go. So God is both knowledgeable about all things, powerful over all things, in charge of everything. He doesn't need to function on a plan B level. So when we use a term like foreknowledge, and in and, and just a moment I'll define it, what Peter is wanting us to get, along with those that were listening to him that day, is that the crucifixion of Jesus was not plan B. It wasn't, gosh, you guys, God sent Jesus into the world. Look how wonderful this guy is. He's the best man that has ever lived. He taught like no one had ever taught. He healed people. He did miracles. He led us to God with true and clear understanding unlike anybody that had ever come before him. And you guys have ruined it all by crucifying him. 
And now, this is why we can't have good things. Because the, rant, the plan is ruined. We can never get back to what it would have been if you had just left your hands off of him. Peter wants them to understand that, yes, they, and, and the emphasis is going to end up in verse 23. Yes, they had a responsibility. Yes, they had a role. Yes, they did a wicked thing. Yes, they did an evil thing. Yes, they conspired. Yes, it was wrong and sinful what they did to crucify him. But God was operating in a level they couldn't have even understood. A deeper level. And how deep does it go? How far back does it go? It goes back to the foreknowledge level. Now, this word foreknowledge is one of the most common, and we're talking about the foreknowledge of God, not you, your foreknowledge or mine. It's one of the most commonly misunderstood theological concepts in Christian study of God's word, study of of God's nature. Um, Here's how many try to describe the foreknowledge of God as it relates to issues of salvation. They describe it as God knew things before they actually happened because he, from eternity past, he looked down the corridors of time and he saw what was going to happen, and then he formed a plan based upon what he saw was going to happen. Meaning the, the sight leads, the foresight, the foreknowledge leads him to formulate a plan that would fit with circumstances that he wasn't so much in charge of, but he saw it, and because he saw it, he was able to plan according to it. Well, first of all, what are the corridors of time anyway? God looked down the corridors of time. That sounds like, you know, like a superhero movie or something. Science fiction or something like that. There are no corridors of time. There's just time. And in terms of God's foreknowledge, the word literally means something more important than just God looked ahead, all right? It's not like, uh, the best example I could think of is, uh, I forget, I think it was the movie Avengers, uh, and, I, and some of you are already tuning out because I'm using a Marvel movie uh, analogy here, but I'm sorry, I'm just gonna use it anyway. Um, Avengers Infinity War, I think was the name of the movie. And there was a circumstance where uh, Doctor Strange is going to, he's going to make a, a fateful decision that will either lead to the victory of the Avengers against this undefeatable opponent or, uh, or he'll make the wrong decision and all will be lost. And he's got this device, this special thing that he wears which contains a, Uh, a special stone it's a green stone called the time stone which gives him control over the corridors of time right (laughs) and so what he does at the key moment of the movie is he he kind of goes into this this special visionary state and he is he's just it's like he's looking in every direction all at once and later he explains what was happening when his 
his uh, comrades asked him, what was going on with you then? He said he was, he was looking at all the possible futures and that he looked at 14 million possible futures and he chose the one out of 14 million where they win the battle. So the, the question is, was God functioning like Dr. Strange? Was God looking at, you know, there's 14 million possible futures and, and the only one that, that can accomplish the plan of salvation is the one where I can successfully get Jesus crucified and all the others will fail. Well, in that sense, yes, I mean, Jesus is certainly, his crucifixion was essential to the plan of salvation, but God wasn't looking into the future from eternity past and trying to figure out, okay, well, this one will fail, and if I do it this way, that'll fail. You know, in 14 million times, this is gonna fail, this is gonna fail, this is gonna fail, and then finally, oh, oh, that's it, that's, that's the answer, that's the way we'll do it. The idea of, of foreknowledge is this. Perfect foreknowledge, as it's describing, because God's foreknowledge would, of course, be perfect. Perfect foreknowledge equals sovereign, purposeful planning. The foreknowledge of God simply is a theological term to describe just how, contro- how much in control God is of the future. Not just the present moment, but the future moments as well. So you and I, for us, the future is completely unknowable, completely uncertain prospect. We don't know what will happen next unless God has said something about what will happen next. But you can't plan your own future out in any sense with the certainty that God planned this future. But because he had a plan that he formulated in his heart, and when did he formulate this plan? The plan was formulated before the foundation of the world. And when he formed the plan, that set that future in motion in a sure and certain and settled way. Meaning when we eventually reach that moment in time, it will unfold exactly as God planned it to unfold, not just saw that it would randomly happen that way. Now, let me give you just briefly four passages of scripture that confirm this concept. And this word foreknowledge uh, just to carry this concept forward into these four passages. It's a word that we're familiar with. It's a word that we still use in our, and I'm talking about the Greek word that Peter actually is. We still use in our language today. We just use it in a slightly different way. It's the Greek word prognosis. How many of you ever heard of a prognosis before? So in a medical context, what's a prognosis? It's, it's, a, it's, a, predict, it's a predicted outcome of a certain set of medical treatments that the doctor prescribes for your care and for your benefit. But because the doctor is human, they can't know with certainty the outcome of their prognosis. But when we're dealing with God and his prognosis, looking at the infected world, the sin-infected world, his prognosis is 100% sure and certain to unfold exactly the way he anticipated. In other words, he's much more than a really, really good guesser. He's in charge. 
and he planned something that would be accomplished exactly the way he planned it. Let's look at these three passages fairly briefly. Uh, first, uh, two of them are just a little bit later in the book of Acts, and we'll, we'll get to these passages eventually, Lord willing. Uh, Acts 3, verse 18. This is part of another public message that Peter gave in the, um, in the temple area. And I'll just, I'll just highlight one line out of it. Acts 3, 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, meaning the story of Christ's sacrifice was told in advance by God through the prophets. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he planned it, and then when the moment came, he ensured that it would unfold exactly the way that he had planned it. Let's look at another one in chapter four, two verses, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, and this is, by the way, part of a prayer. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So he's got all these enemies gathered together against him. And verse 28 explains what then unfolded. To do whatever, not they planned, but to do whatever they're praying to God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there are, there are enemies in verse 27. The enemies are identified as Herod, he was the king of Israel. He's in large and in charge. Pontius Pilate, he's the Roman governor. He's even larger and more in charger. And then there's the Gentiles, which are all of the Roman soldiers that carried out the uh, execution orders. And then all the peoples of Israel who were the multitude crowd that had been influenced by the Sanhedrin and cried out in front of Pontius Pilate, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. So all of those enemies are gathered together against Christ, but the true story of his crucifixion was not those four groups of enemies. The true story was God had it unfold so that whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place did take place. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, these four passages I've chosen aren't the only four that make this emphasis, but these four are particularly helpful ones. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. And of course, Peter, who wrote this book, is the same Peter that was preaching on the day of Pentecost knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And then the final passage, Revelation chapter 13. This one will require just a brief, a super brief explanation. 
Let me read it as it is in our translation, and then I'll describe uh, how uh, it is in the original text, which is a little bit different. In our translation, Revelation 13, verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. This, this is speaking about the beast and its image. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. So in this portion, there is a, there is a, um, a book that's in focus. And it's identified as the book of life of the lamb. The lamb, of course, is Christ. And that book is located in heaven. And there are, there are writings in that book. And the writings in the book is really, it's a registry. It's a list of names. And the names that are in the book are names of the saved, names of the redeemed, names of those who belong to the lamb, who are his, who are his followers. And the way it's described in our translation is that the, the names were written in the book before the foundation of the world. Now, that's not an untrue principle or concept. That is a biblical concept, and it's later emphasized again in chapter 17 of Revelation. But in the original uh, language of this verse, the emphasis is really slightly different, and, and it's an important difference. It's not so much in this verse a focus on the names being written before the foundation of the world, but on the lamb and something happening to him before the foundation of the world. It's really written this way. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So in what Jesus being the lamb and slain being a reference to his crucifixion, what the apostle John is saying in this visionary understanding of the true story of the cross is he saying he's saying that yes at a specific moment in history as we know it jesus was actually crucified but his point is that there is a deeper sense to the plan of salvation a deeper sense to the crucifixion circumstance of christ and that jesus was actually crucified before the foundation of the world meaning he was crucified in eternity past how can that be true It can only be true in this one sense, and that is that God purposed it to happen. God planned for it to happen. He had a horizon purpose that he formed in his heart before the world was even created by him, which means that with whatever else happened in history once he created the world and beyond, this horizon purpose would certainly unfold exactly the way he planned and purposed it. He was crucified before the world even began in the heart and mind of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it had to unfold exactly the way that it did. All right, now let's catch the last detail of what Peter emphasizes in this verse back in Acts chapter 2. And I mentioned this briefly earlier. I don't want to leave it out. Reading again, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, the horizon purpose and the foreknowledge of God. You, and he's speaking here to a Jewish crowd that were gathered that day out of curiosity of what had happened with them being filled with the Spirit. You crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. So there are two responsible parties that Peter identifies. And he's breaking one of the classic rules, Peter is, he's breaking one of the classic rules of modern preaching. And if I had to put, okay, I, I can either preach like a modern preacher, or I can preach like Peter. Which do you think I would choose? Peter. I want to preach more like Peter, less like the modern preachers. The rule, the classic rule is, you don't ever offend the people that you're speaking to. You don't ever make them the target of some negative point that you want to make. Because why? You might hurt their feelings, you might offend them, and then what would be the possible end result of offending them in that way? They might not want to come back. And if they don't come back, then you're not going to get any dollars in the collection plate. And then what's going to happen to you? Well, Peter, of course, was not concerned about that, was he? Because he put them right on the spot. I mean, he put the targets squarely on their hearts. Now, what's interesting is, before he even did that, though, he put the target on God the Father's heart. And he put the target on God the Son's heart. And he said, God planned all this out. Which should have, had he not said this final portion of verse 23, left the crowd feeling, oh, <laughs> that's good to know, actually, because you know, I thought we were responsible for the crucifixion of this man. But I'm glad to hear that it wasn't us that was responsible, it was God that was responsible. Peter says both are true. It's not either or, both are true. God planned it in the highest sense, but you're still responsible for your part that you played in what actually unfolded. The fact that God sovereignly planned this doesn't mean that it was wrong for you to do it because he was a purely innocent man. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus. He certainly didn't deserve the punishment that he received or any punishment whatsoever. So he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he made the Jewish crowd responsible, but he also made the Roman authorities and the soldiers that carried out their orders responsible. Both combined to carry out the plan and purpose of God. Now, what that tells us is that God didn't force anyone to do this wicked deed against their will. God planned that Jesus had to be crucified. And when the time came, there were plenty of people that wanted to participate in it, even though they didn't understand it was all part of God's plan, because they had their own evil, twisted, wicked plans and purposes that were dominating their heart's decisions. Each group that we've already highlighted had their own motive. The Sanhedrin had their own motive. The, um, the crowd that cried out, you know, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. They had their own motive. Judas, who betrayed him, had his own motive. Pontius Pilate had his own political motive. And of course, the soldiers that carried him out, carried out the execution, had their own motive. And so we have two responsibilities. We have what we can call the immediate responsibility, which is the actual people the four parties who participated in the process of his crucifixion. And then we have what I'm calling an extended spiritual responsibility. And that is, how does this relate to us? Is there any point at the end of verse 23? You killed and, and, 
and crucified this man by the hands of lawless men. Does that have anything to do with us today? And the answer is it absolutely has something to do with us because the cross was a necessary response of a loving God to a spiritual infection that was killing you. And it was the only way to accomplish your salvation. But had you never sinned, the cross would not have been required for you. And so we all, though we weren't on site, we didn't participate in the exact same way as the Sanhedrin or the exact same way as Pilate or the exact same way as the Roman soldiers, we all bear our own responsibility for the cross. The necessity of the cross was due to our own participation in sin. All right, so application for our lives today. I've got four things for you to consider and take away today. First, appreciate the choice that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit made in eternity past to when the moment came in history, the the perfect moment to sacrifice the Son of God for our salvation. God was not obligated to choose to sacrifice his son. He was not obligated to send his son. And the son was not obligated toward us in any sense. His only obligation was to his father. He had no obligation whatsoever toward us in order to save us. And when someone goes just a little bit out of their way for your sake, we all understand the principles of appreciation and gratitude. We should be appreciative when someone goes out of their way for our benefit. But when someone does what they chose to do for our sake, that should create in us an eternity-long depth of appreciation for the choice they made to save us. Second, recognize the certainty of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. I, am, I for one, am particularly grateful to the Lord and thankful that there is and was and continues to be a horizon purpose in the plan of salvation. And that God, before the world even began, planned this, before he even planned how he would make the world. This is a plan that precedes everything else that's ever happened in history. I appreciate that the Lord has opened my eyes to understand just how far back and how deep this plan of salvation goes. Because for me, it makes me utterly and completely secure in the course of an ever-changing world, an uncertain world. It just feels like every, every day, you know, reading the news or hearing the news or, or clicking on some internet news site, there's just stuff going on all around us all the time that make our whole life like we're, we're, we're riding an earthquake that just, we don't know how this is going to end up. But... If you understand that the most important thing about your life has been pre-planned before before the earth itself even existed, that should give you some sense of deep security. And then rest, that security leads you to rest. That, That security leads you to, I'm not so anxious, I'm not so worried about stuff because the most important thing has already been established. Rest in the truth that God planned to save, if you belong to the Lord, if you are born again, if you're one of his sheep, that God planned to save you before the world was ever made. Your 
His sacrifice was planned before the foundation of the world, but your name being written in this book was also accomplished. God wrote that name before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in a book that was already existent. And it just, it just made your relationship with him sure and certain. And then finally, acknowledge your responsibility and the necessity of the cross. It's, it's just a good reminder for all of our hearts that had I, had I not sinned, he wouldn't have needed to die in the way that he did. It's a, it's a, it's a perspective of humility. It's a perspective of, of a recognition that um, this was an extreme plan. I mean, an extreme plan to accomplish our salvation, but it was only necessary because of the depth and degree of sin, and I have my own responsibility in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for working and moving in Peter's heart in such a way in a message to unbelievers to introduce to their ignorant and spiritually darkened perspectives the idea that you were at work in these circumstances of the sacrifice of your son. You were at work fulfilling a plan that was formed before the world itself was formed. It's an awesome thing, Lord, and I don't even know exactly how we would all incorporate that into our own representation of the gospel to those that you, you cause us to, to interact with. But I pray that um, when the right moment comes, you would remind us of this principle. And for the sake of our own hearts and our own minds and our own relationship with you, I pray that uh, the result of this study today would be that you would anchor each one of our hearts in a deeper way to the reality that he was and is and always will be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Father God. Blessed be your name. Amen.